Welcome to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, March 17th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. So how many thumbs does the Fed have? I think they're going to need more. You know, they managed to stick a thumb in the hole that opened up in the dam late last week, but it's not going to be the last crack in that dam. I'm imagining a dam that springs a leak, right? A little analogy here. So the dam's leaking. Somebody comes along and they stick their thumb in the hole and it stops the water. And then another hole opens up. So the person leans over and sticks the other thumb in that hole. Catastrophe averted, right? Then a third hole appears, and our intrepid rescuer somehow manages to plug that leak with his toe. Then there's a fourth leak. You get the picture. I think that's pretty much what the Federal Reserve is facing right now. So I've been saying for months that something in the economy is going to break. This economy and the financial system are not built for high interest rates. And and by high, I mean pretty much anything above zero. Well, last week, something broke. Silicon Valley Bank failed. It was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, only behind the collapse of Washington Mutual back in 2008. You remember 2008, right? The financial crisis? Then over the weekend, Signature Bank went under, which incidentally was the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. So two major banks collapse within days of each other. So yeah, something broke. And it goes to show how quickly things can shift and happen in this crazy financial world we live in. I mean, on the Monday before the SVB collapse, nobody had that on their radar. Nobody had Silicon Valley Bank on their radar. And then, you know, you wake up Friday morning and and all of a sudden you've got this financial crisis brewing. That's how quickly things can happen. And it's interesting, if you listen to the mainstream reporting, everybody's like, oh, nobody saw this coming. And in a sense, they're right. Nobody saw this specific thing coming. Nobody saw Silicon Valley Bank collapsing. In fact, uh, it was ranked as one of the greatest banks in the United States not very long ago. So yeah, in, in a sense, nobody saw it coming. But in another sense, I saw it coming, not this specific thing, but again, I've been saying something is going to break in the economy. Other people have been saying that as well, and it's a function of the way this economy is is built. It's built on low interest rates. It's built on quantitative easing and easy money, and and those things are gone, so you have to expect the economy is going to stop functioning properly when you've taken those things away. But on Sunday, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury managed to ride into the rescue. They stuck a thumb in the hole in the dam. Now, have they snuffed out this crisis? Maybe, for now. That really remains to be seen. I mean, we could wake up next Monday to another bank collapse. Who knows? But these bank failures are a symptom of a much bigger problem. And while the actions of the Fed and the U.S. Treasury seem to have settled things down, uh, at least to some extent, they've actually made the underlying problem worse. So today I want to dig into exactly what happened and what it means. You know, and honestly, I haven't seen a lot of good, easy-to-understand analysis of exactly what the Fed and the U.S. Treasury did. 
Most of the discussion seems to lean in one of two directions. There's the people that are downplaying what happened. You know, oh, it's contained. Uh, you know, this was two specific banks. It had to do with the tech sector. It was cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, th this is an anomaly. And keep in mind, the people that are saying this are the same people that told you that uh, the financial crisis in 2008, that everything was contained to subprime. You know, so when they say it's contained, you can probably understand that it's absolutely not contained. Uh, but but that's kind of one side of the spectrum. And then on the other side of the spectrum, of the spectrum, I think there are some people who are uh, overstating exactly what the Fed has done and and how it's going to impact things moving forward. So. Let's kind of dig into it. What exactly happened? Well, last week, Silicon Valley Bank was shuttered by federal authorities. They shut it down after it suffered significant losses selling bonds in an attempt to raise capital. Now, when news of a big loss in this bond sale hit, depositors were worried about the financial strength of the bank, so they rushed to pull funds from the bank. Uh, so, in effect, we had a bank run. And the bank became functionally insolvent. So then over the weekend, federal authorities shut down a second bank, Signature Bank, uh, that was basically dealing with the same type of problem. Now, on Sunday of, uh, of last week, the FDIC created what they call bridge banks to handle both insured and uninsured customer deposits. Uh, banking regulators assured depositors that they would have full access to all of their funds. Now, I don't, I don't have time to get real deep into the FDIC stuff. Uh, I'll link to some articles in the show notes page that kind of get into that a little bit. But suffice to say, basically what the FDIC did was they took the $250,000 maximum protection for deposits, and they raised that to infinity. They have now set the precedent that if you have money deposited into a bank, that uh, it's effectively all covered by FDIC insurance. Now, they had to do it because they didn't want there to be runs on other small banks and have other banks collapsed. And so in that sense, it worked. But think of the moral hazard that they've created here and, and the unfunded liabilities that they've effectively put on the government books. Um, but again, I'm not going to get real deep into the FDIC stuff that I will link to some stuff uh, if you're interested in getting a little bit deeper into that. So meanwhile, the Federal Reserve announced a loan program that will allow other banks to easily access capital to, quote, help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all of their depositors. They call it the Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP for short. It will offer loans of up to one year in length to banks, savings associations, credit unions, and other eligible depository institutions that pledge U.S. Treasuries, agency debt, and mortgage-backed securities as collateral. Banks will be able to borrow against these assets at par in other words, at face value. Now, this is important, and we'll get a little bit more into what that means here in a minute. But that's really the, the key to this whole scheme is the fact that they will be able to borrow at par, at face value. So according to a Federal Reserve statement, the BTFP will be an additional source of liquidity against high-quality securities, eliminating an institution's need to quickly sell those securities in times of stress. The U.S. Treasury is going to provide $25 billion in credit protection to the Fed from 
the Exchange Stabilization Fund. That's a fund that already exists, and, and it helps facilitate loans, et cetera, et cetera. So this program will ostensibly help banks avoid the situation that brought down Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, so that's kind of the nuts and bolts of this situation. But what does all of this mean in effect, right? You probably read a lot of that in the news. Well, first you have to understand the backdrop of all of this. Last week, SVB, when I say last week, I mean like the week before this one, SVB sold a large portion of its bond portfolio at a $1.8 billion loss. SVB CEO Greg Beck said that the bank made the sale, quote, because we expect continued higher interest rates, pressured public and private markets, and elevated cash burn levels from our clients. So the bank bought these bonds, this big bond portfolio, when interest rates were low. As a result, the $21 billion available for sale bond portfolio was not yielding above their cash burn. In other words, the bank is spending a lot of money right now, a lot of money going out. The interest that's being generated by this bond portfolio is not covering their cash burn. Uh, and that's because they bought these bonds kind of as an investment because the price of the bonds was high, interest rates were low, it was a good deal, it was a great investment at the time, but because of what the Fed has done, that bond portfolio has lost value. So the plan here was to sell the longer-term, lower-interest rate bonds and then reinvest that money into shorter-duration bonds with a higher yield uh, that would allow them to cover their cash outflow. Instead, the sale actually dented the bank's balance sheet and it caused worried depositors to pull funds out of the bank. Now, a lot of other banks are likely in the same situation as SVB was. Why? Because of the Fed. As the Fed jacked up interest rates to fight price inflation, it decimated the bond market. Now, keep in mind, bond prices and interest rates are inversely correlated, right? As interest rates rise, bond prices fall. That means the value of these bond portfolios dropped rapidly as the Feds went and raised rates in order to fight price inflation. So that's why SVB's bond portfolio had decreased in value. So with interest rates going up so quickly, banks have not been able to adjust their bond holdings. As a result, many banks have become undercapitalized on paper. The banking sector was buried under some $620 billion in unrealized losses on securities at the end of last year. This is according to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC. So in other words, $620 billion in unrealized losses means that's how much these bond portfolios have dropped in value. Now, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just on paper until they actually have to sell these bonds into the market. Then they're going to actually lose that money, and that's exactly what happened to SVB. They were put in a position where they needed to raise capital. They decided to try to sell the bonds, and they lost a bunch of money. These unrealized losses turned into realized losses. Now, the BTFP, this Fed program, it actually gives banks a way out. It's a bailout. Or it's at least the opportunity for the banks to kick the can down the road for a year. So instead of selling the bonds that have dropped in value at a big loss, banks can go to the Fed and borrow money at the bond's face value. So in effect, the Fed will print money out of thin air 
and loan it to the banks based on a fake value of the bonds. Like they couldn't sell it for that much money, but they're going to be able to get loans up to the face value because the Fed can magically do that because it can print money out of, out of thin air. Now, I've seen a lot of people calling this a return to quantitative easing, and it's really not. I mean, it's certainly going to have a lot of the same impacts as QE, and I'll get into that here in a second. But I think calling it QE is stretching things a bit. And I will admit, I've gotten in some debates with some people about this, and I will confess I'm being a bit pedantic here. But I'm okay with that. And it's the journalist in me. I feel like it's important to be accurate. You know, I'm always railing about the fact that they've changed the definition of inflation, and now inflation means something that doesn't really mean. QE has a, a meaning. I think it's important that we be true to the definitions and meanings of words. It makes communication more clear. So here's the distinction. Quantitative easing is a bond buying program. The Federal Reserve prints money out of thin air. When I say prints, I mean it creates. But it creates money out of thin air and it buys bonds. And those bonds go on the Fed's balance sheet. And then the, uh, the newly created money goes into the financial system. This is a loan program that is backed by bonds. Now, again, there are a lot of similarities here, but, they, but there are important differences. And I think a lot of the confusion stems from the fact that, you know, most people don't really understand accounting. Uh, a little known fact about yours truly is I actually have an accounting degree. So this is kind of my wheelhouse. So let me try to explain exactly what the Fed is doing here. Unlike QE, this scheme does not require the Fed to put bonds on its balance sheet like it does when it runs quantitative easing. It's not buying the bonds. So you're not going to see a bunch of new treasuries show up on the Fed's balance sheet. In fact, the Fed can actually keep letting bonds roll off of its balance sheet while it runs this BTFP scheme. So we might actually see a continuation of balance sheet reduction, at least in terms of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So in a nutshell, the Fed's going to loan a bank money. That loan becomes an asset on the Fed's balance sheet and a liability on the borrowing bank's balance sheet. That's the, the accounting transaction. The bonds themselves remain on the borrower's balance sheet, and then there will be a note with them disclosing that they're uh, encumbered as collateral. So these bonds will only transfer to the Fed in the event of a default. Otherwise, the asset, the loan, will come off of the Fed's balance sheet once the loan is repaid, and the corresponding liability on the bank's balance sheet will also zero out. That means as far as this program goes, the Fed balance sheet expansion is temporary, unlike QE, where the bonds just stay there until the Fed decides to do quantitative tightening, balance sheet reduction. So the key point is the Fed is not expanding its treasury or mortgage-backed security holdings unless a bank defaults. So the inflationary impact of this monetary expansion is ostensibly temporary because the money created by the Fed and put into the financial system will be reabsorbed once the loan is paid out. It'll come out of the financial system and just go back to the Fed. Now, of course, there is going to be some inflationary pressure because these capital infusions will allow banks to keep loaning out money. And because of fractional reserve banking, anytime there's a loan, it actually increases the money supply. So even if all the loans get repaid, there will be some permanent money creation due to the program. But it's not like all of this money that the Fed is going to create for these loans is going to stay out there in the economy forever. Um, at least the way the plan is structured now. Now, 
don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this isn't a crazy scheme. I'm not saying it's a, a good idea. I'm just explaining the reality of the nuts and bolts. Now, here's the part that's kind of nutty. Since the Fed is lending based on the par value of the bonds, face value, part of this loan is technically unsecured. So just for an example, let's say that the value of the bonds have dropped 20%. That means 80% of the loan is secured by the value of the bond, and 20% is unsecured. That's why the Treasury has pledged $25 billion from the Exchange Stabilization Fund. If there is a default, the Fed will get the bonds, those will go on the balance sheet, plus it'll get money from the Treasury to cover the unsecured part of the loan. The really crazy thing about this is that no sane person would ever make a loan based on par. The value of collateral is generally based on market value plus a haircut to further protect the lender. So you're never going to see somebody loan money based on the face value of a bond. You know, I wouldn't do it. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, I'll take this uh, collateral at face value even though it's worth 80% less in in real terms. It's, it's just nuts. Only a government central bank would do such a thing, right? Also, it's important to understand from uh, uh, from an impact perspective. The Fed is potentially injecting billions, if not trillions of dollars of liquidity into the financial system. And even if it's just temporary, as I've already said, it's going to create inflationary pressure. Also, from a practical standpoint, the Fed is putting its thumb on the bond market by incentivizing banks and other institutions to hold their treasuries instead of selling them into the market. In effect, it creates an artificial limit on the supply of treasuries, which will artificially keep prices higher than they otherwise would be. If this program didn't exist, some other banks would certainly, needing capital, would sell these bonds. So the bonds would go out on the market, that would create the supply of bonds, that would would, uh, push the price of the bonds down and and raise interest rates even higher. Um, So they're basically kind of doing what QE would do in the bond market. Uh, They're suppressing bond interest rates by incentivizing banks and institutions to keep the bonds on their books. It's the same kind of effect you would get from QE. So while I do bristle a little at calling this quantitative easing, because that's not what it is, technically speaking, it certainly will have a lot of the same impacts on the financial system, albeit probably not as big as an actual quantitative easing program would be. Now, this is not an insignificant amount of money. JP Morgan estimated it could be as much as $2 trillion. That's trillion with a T. Now think about this. What's the whole point of raising interest rates? Why is the Fed playing this game to begin with? It is to wring liquidity out of the system in an attempt to slay price inflation, right? This program, this loan program, does the exact opposite. It's really pouring gasoline on the inflation fire. While it's not as inflationary as, as actual QE yet, they're still, in, they're, they're still creating inflation while saying they're fighting inflation. If that's not a quintessential government program, I don't know what is. We're going to create inflation while we fight inflation. But this program is supposed to be temporary, right? Do we really believe that? I mean, we have to assume it is as we analyze it today. That's why I'm saying that, technically speaking, this is a temporary inflationary measure. 
But I can't help but go back and think of Ben Bernanke, former Fed chair, back in 2008, saying that QE was temporary, it was an emergency measure, and that it was absolutely not debt monetization. Well, we now know it wasn't temporary, and it absolutely was debt monetization. So I wouldn't be shocked if this program doesn't morph into some kind of permanent program or the Fed forgives the loans or they extend the terms and they end up putting these bonds on their balance sheet and actually monetizing that that difference between their face value and, and their actual value. But as of now, that's not the plan. So in my view, this is basically a kick the can down the road scheme. And honestly, I got to confess, it's kind of brilliant. Banks can access capital based on their bond holdings without selling into the market at a big loss, as SVB was forced to do. This provides some stability for both the banks and the bond markets, as I've already explained. So the Fed has effectively created a way to mitigate the impact of interest rate hikes on bank balance sheets without having to lower interest rates, more broadly speaking. They can continue balance sheet reduction, and they can even keep hiking interest rates for the time being. They can say they're still in the inflation fight. What I really think is I think they're hoping that this was going to buy them time to plausibly end tightening. I mean, it can't right now, right? But they're hoping maybe if they can push the can down the road for a year, then they can plausibly say, oh, we beat inflation, and now we can go ahead and start cutting interest rates. So back to my analogy, there was a hole in the dam, and they managed to shove a finger in it. But even if the Fed and the Treasury have managed to calm things down a bit, they still have a big problem. Inflation is alive and well. The annual rise in the consumer price index for February came in at 6%. Now, this was down from the 6.4% annual increase that was charted in January. It was the eighth monthly decline in CPI. So this seems to have restored faith that the Federal Reserve is winning the inflation fight. We're starting to hear the term disinflation again. But everybody should probably stop and remember that the target is 2%. 6% is a lot bigger than 2%. Now, this show's already going to run long, so I don't really have time to take a deep dive into the CPI uh, in the show, but I will link to my analysis on the show notes page if you want to dig into it. But suffice to say, no matter how you slice it and dice it, the Fed still has a long way to go before it can say it's winning the inflation fight. The central bank really can't plausibly pivot right now, and I don't think it will. In fact, I'm pretty certain we're going to see a 25 basis point rate hike next week. I think they think they can do this because they've papered over the bank problem. So, you know, initially when I saw this SVB stuff, I thought, well, rate hikes are off the table. They're going to pause hiking, but I don't think they're going to now. I think the CPI was too high. I think that they feel like they need to keep pressing forward. And and most importantly, I think that they think that they've managed to kind of calm the waters and everything is going to be okay for the time being. Also, the European Central Bank raised rates half a percentage point on Thursday, uh, despite the problems in their banking sector. So um, I I just find it highly unlikely that the Fed is actually going to pivot. But the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank was just the first sign of things breaking in this bubble economy. The truth of the matter is the collapse of these banks reveals the fact that this economy cannot run in a high interest rate environment. And it's only a matter of time before something else breaks. And while the bailout may have bought 
the Fed some time so it can carry on the inflation fight theater for another act or two. This bailout scheme was effectively a return to money creation and an end to monetary tightening. So while the Fed's going to say, oh, no, no, we're not pivoting. We're going to raise interest rates. We're still in the in the inflation fight. Yes, the Fed really did pivot for, for all intents and purposes. Even if the Fed elects to raise rates in March, the show is effectively over. Any appearance of disinflation today, next month, or even the month after that, is transitory. Despite falling over the last eight months, CPI is still closer to its summer peak than it is to the Fed's mythical 2% target. So, again, it hasn't beat inflation. Things are already breaking in the economy, in the financial system. This is a mess, and it brings us back to the fundamental reality. The U.S. economy is addicted to easy money. It is addicted to artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. You can't take an addict's drug away without sending him in to withdraw. It eventually happens. The economy can only limp along so long with this tighter monetary policy. We saw the first crack in the dam last week. The Fed and the U.S. Treasury managed to stick a finger in that hole. But there are more cracks to come, and eventually the entire dam will break. Now, I know it's easy to sit back and think, eh, I don't really care about banks. But when the financial system gets shaky, the economy gets shaky. Banking is the oil of the economy, right? And you know what happens when you let the oil drain out of your car? This is really upping the likelihood of a deep recession. I mean, if you can say you're upping something from 100%, because I think we were heading for a deep recession anyway. But, I mean, if the financial system is crumbling, we're on the precipice of the collapse of the economy. Look at the price of oil. It's tanking as if we were already in a deep recession. So really what this is, it's just another step toward stagflation. It's been all over the place. Um, we saw a big sell-off in the banking sector, but then we saw some rally in the, in the stock market and uh, a lot of volatility. And that's really the name of the game in the stock market. The bond market uh, has actually rallied because of all of this. Um, again, I think part of it is because uh, everybody now knows that these banks won't be forced to sell bonds into the market. And there's also a safe haven bid. I mean, a lot of people think U.S. Treasuries are a great place to to put their money. You know, they always have been considered the safe investment. I don't know if that's true for the long run, but certainly you're better off uh, putting your money in some bonds than you are leaving them in the bank right now. I think that's a lot of people's thinking. The banking sector is shaky, so I'm not going to leave my money in the bank. I'll put it in a treasury. Um, and gold. With the collapse of these two banks and the continued tremors in the banking sector uh, in Europe, gold caught a strong safe haven bid this week. It quickly rallied to over $1,900 an ounce on Monday. It was up like 50 bucks. It hit a, it hit a five-week high on Wednesday. As of the close on Thursday, it had held above 1900 despite some healthy profit-taking, along with strong headwinds from a rallying dollar, um, and the realization that the central bank is going to keep on trying to tighten uh, while simultaneously loosening. As you know, any indication that the Fed is going to keep tightening, uh, any indication that the economy is still okay, has been a headwind for gold. Uh, despite that, Gold has managed to hold its gains for the most part, uh, at least to this point. Um, 
Uh, speaking of dollars, a lot of people are jumping into greenbacks as a safe haven, especially foreign investors. I know it sounds crazy, but it, you know, if you're holding euros, maybe less crazy. Or what about the Australian dollar? You know, gold actually set a record in the Aussie dollar this week. Uh, so, you know, as usual, the dollar is still kind of the cleanest dirty shirt in a laundry hamper. Although I think that's starting to to shift and change as we're starting to see this kind of global movement toward de-dollarization. But again, this is something that's kind of a slow, long-term kind of thing, as opposed to something that's going to happen overnight. Anyway, I think there's going to be a lot of buying opportunity for gold and silver in the weeks ahead, but we are inching closer and closer to the end game. And we'll see how long the Fed and the government can keep the plate spinning. Uh, we may see another hole in the dam next week, or you know, it may come some months down the road, but you can't avoid the inevitable, right? That's why they call it inevitable. So if you're considering gold or silver, now is the time to act. Don't keep waiting for the collapse. We've just saw the tremor. You know, that's the warning sign. So don't wait. If you've been considering it, act now. Talk to a shift gold precious metal specialist. Call 1-888-GOLD-160 or email info at shiftgold.com or go to shiftgold.com. Go to the Getting Started tab and you can chat with the precious metal specialist right there online. And uh, they'll discuss with you how precious metals, gold and silver, can fit into your investment portfolio. Um, they'll look at your investment goals, what you're trying to do, and, and help you fit gold and silver into your portfolio. Um, you know, you may not be the kind of person that's thinking, oh, I want to have all my money in gold and silver, but it is an important part of a well-balanced portfolio. And, and quite frankly, most people don't have any gold or silver in their portfolio, and that's just not very smart, I don't think. So that is a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of these stories and more. And, of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com news. A lot more information on this whole SVP thing over there. And, of course, if you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap over on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Shift Gold YouTube channel. Links to all of these things are on the show notes page. You can email me, mmahary.com shipgold.com m-m-a-h-a-r-r-e-y at shipgold.com love to hear from folks happy St. Patty's Day to all you Irish folks out there hope you have a great weekend and I'll talk to y'all next week